Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Um, in, in light of what I said about the end of the year, we obviously need to think about um, where we are as people and as a house. Um, I, I think, um, you know, we moved to the whole love, accept, forgive, do, the, the practical expression. I think we've done reasonably well <coughs> with that. Um, I don't think we've fully figured out um, what it means to be a house of love and grace yet. Um, because there is a difference in the <coughs> receiving of love and the giving of love. And um, I think we have made a journey, particularly for, for some of you, have made a tremendous journey on, on the whole aspect of receiving the love of God by grace. Um, but then sometimes we have to figure out what does it demand of us to, to then love in the same way that we have been loved. Um, and so it, it's this paradox that, that learning to be loved by God brings us into complete freedom. But then what we do with that freedom becomes, becomes the issue because we can then, freedom can always be taken and uh, indulged upon the self. So therefore, because I am free, I don't have to. There's no pressure on me too. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, which is absolutely correct, but then um, love should never produce its fruit as a result of our sense of we have to or we must. It should always produce its fruit out of the sense um, our deep appreciation for that love makes us want to makes us want to respond to that love in such a way that we give we give that love out. Now, of course, every time that love is given out, it it it, it requires or should well, requires probably the wrong word. When love is really given out, love will sacrifice, okay? Love will go beyond. Um, love will extend itself. Love will put itself out. So um, I want us to keep that in mind as we try to develop this, this, this process because we're not going back to what I have told you I call the, uh, uh, the reward-punishment promotion system that, that exists um, when we're not free from the law. You're rewarded for doing good, you're punished for doing bad, and uh, you gain your, you gain your um, uh, affirmation through promotion. You know, I'm more spiritual, I have a position, I teach, I have a group, whatever, those kind of things. And of course, we've left those a long way behind, but I, I hope you understand that the problem that creates is, is much more complex than the old problem because there's no complexity to you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't go there, you can't go here, you must do that, you mustn't do this. There's no real complexity to that. So actually in, in a law system, there is a lot of security in law and um, we can still, from a place of grace, want to go back to a system of law. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what's right, tell me what's wrong. Um, and the truth is we could, it's, it's, it's very easy to do that, but, but um, I believe all through, all through the Bible narrative, God was trying to get people to live apart from that system. So I've told you before that, um, you know, the old law that we know, the Ten Commandments and all that stuff, um, is, um, is interesting to me because um, God gave that, to the children of Israel three months after, their, after they left their 430 years of, of slavery in Egypt. Um, which The way my brain works is this. If, if that was what he wanted, if that was what was on his mind, then wouldn't it have made a lot more sense before they left Egypt when he told them about the Passover to say, okay, here's, here's how you get free from Egypt and here's the rules that you're supposed to live by. So my inquiring mind said, why didn't, why didn't God do that? It would have made a lot more sense. But it seems to me, when you track it, that they had a three-month window in which there was an opportunity to embrace this freedom that they'd been given um, and to be free from the oppression they had lived under because they were under an oppression to slavery. You'd think God would think the last thing they're going to want 
is a bunch of rules and regulations and demands and, uh, you know, sacrifices that are difficult to make. And uh, you would think that, but then three months in, God gives them the law. Why does he give them the law? Because instead of, instead of that freedom producing in them a, a mutual love for one another and a sense of community, they whinged and complained and moaned and uh, got into the whole um, entitlement thing. You know, well, we're in, God's giving them bread, but we're entitled to meat. You know, we want meat. Yeah, we've got this amazing bread that comes from heaven, but we want meat. Give me meat. So, um, not, many, not many vegetarians among them, apparently. Um, so, so, so the, the issue of living in freedom has got something to do then with, with how we respond to it, the choices that we make, how, how, how much we respect and appreciate uh, the freedom that we have been given and, and that those demands that were once there have been gone. And it seems to me that we don't readily and easily do that. You'd think we would, wouldn't you? You'd think we'd think, this is fantastic. Well, I think the children of Israel leaving Egypt did for a day or two. This is fantastic. You know, look, the Egyptians are buried behind us. You know, we've had to get up and work every day. There's been all these demands to be there and do this and fix that. And now it's all gone and you'd think, you'd think that would fix things, but it didn't. So, without getting too deep in Scripture, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of imploring goes on. Then, even in the New Testament, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, which I've said is a really, really strange statement because, you know, if you're set free, how come you have to be told it was for freedom that Christ set us free? Because the natural response to being set free from oppression or from bondage or from rules and from demands, you would you would think would, would, would bring us freedom, but it doesn't always do that. So it says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. So don't become, don't become bound in different ways to what it was you were free from. So um, sometimes we struggle of how that works in practical terms, but I think the Bible's always been a book of communities, okay? Uh, it's not really about lone wolves doing their own thing. It's been about... It's been about people so you know it, 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 it's it's a family it's a nation it, it's 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 a, a group of disciples it's you know it's it's a church okay so it's always been about community therefore what i would propose to you is that is that um we are not freed from considerations of what might be required in the context of the community because we got set free from demands and having to in fact, that should free us into a greater um, understanding of what it is that's required in the community. So instead of our minds being worried about, am I going to be judged for this and am I going to be judged for that and will I get rewarded or punished, our minds should be, okay, out of the freedom God has given me, how do I use that attention that was once focused on, on staying out of trouble or staying in God's good books? How do I focus that on trying to be observant and appreciative of what is necessary in the context of the community. So, uh, I had no intention whatsoever of saying any of that, um, but I think it's important, and I think it's important for us as we try to move, move forward um, in terms of a house, because understanding freedom is a lot more difficult than understanding law. It really is. Um, but, but we've made good steps, and you guys have made good steps. Um, but we need, to, we need to be committed to a cause higher than ourselves. And I believe that's the cause of Christ. I still believe in the local church. I, I believe, you know, Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. So we've understood a little bit about ecclesia, that that's those who are, you know, ordinary people called together in one place to make legislative decisions. So our ordinariness qualifies us for it. Um, but, but it seems that in Jesus' mind, there was still this thing that he wanted to pull us together. You know, Jesus prayed in his famous prayer in, 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 um, in John 17, I pray that they may be one as we are one. That's what he prayed to the Father. And I don't think he meant in a soppy, lovey-dovey kind of way, oh, you know, we want in Jesus. I think, I think he, he meant that, that we would have some sense of flowing together and consideration for what that requires and what that takes. Now... 
Of course, I could put pressure on us even more by saying that that the demand that that produced, uh, that Jesus responded to willingly, not as a demand, was that he sacrificed himself, you know, in order for resurrection to come. So I'm, I'm just throwing some of these thoughts out to you because um, finding your place in this, um, finding who you should be and what we should be and what we should expand into is, is a good challenge for us that is where, where we need to go now. So um, people are different. People need different things. But um, I also believe that God al- always provides in any given context, what is needed for the challenge that we face. So if you see something, um, the answer to that is not just come to leaders so they can do something about it. The answer is come to leaders so you can do something about it and we can support you and back you up and, and help you. So may God bless us, everyone, for this year and for next year. So... Um, I was also talking to them, a couple of things, were, well, three, three things particularly were on my heart. So I, talk, I talked to them a little bit about um, some of the stuff we've been sharing about uh, Genesis 1 and that, that model of, of uh, you know, seven steps to, uh, to wholeness and completeness. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about beginnings, which we've talked about here, that, that the Bible is a book of beginnings and shared some of those things about light. I also talked to them uh, some of the thoughts that we shared about um, um, when Paul said, uh, wrote to the Corinthians and said that you are you are living epistles, okay, seen and read by all men. You are the you are the the Bible being written now. You are you are what people see um, as the Scripture. And what's fascinating is the more the more you detach yourself from church thinking, the more you realise. People search for God are not looking for you to quote a Bible verse to them. Okay, that's not what they're looking for. And uh, uh, I think rarely, rarely does it work um, when people are not religiously connected um, saying, here's a verse from the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it can't work or it's not a blessing, but probably the most effective Bible they will ever see is your life. It's what's being written in you. It's, it's what you are allowing them to read of uh, your journey of faith, your challenges, the things you faced when you encountered death, when you encountered sickness, when, uh, when you faced challenges in life, relationally and personally and emotionally. I think those are the more powerful, powerful scriptures. So the scriptures help us to teach us, but actually you're the bit that's being read. So, so I talked to them some, some about that. Now, it, it's not as radical to us now as it is to some of them, but for some of them, when you start talking about there is scripture beyond scripture... Um, you know, you are so pulling the rug out from under them that it's just, it's just frightening. But they were very gracious, and uh, I think we made a good case for the for for that cause. But um, the main thing on my heart was something that I still think was is important here, um, it, and it's important because it, it's important. Okay, and I think I think this is where we are on our journey. So I talked to them. Um, probably more extensively than I talked to you out of 1 Corinthians 13, um, where Paul finishes that off in verse 13 by saying these three remain. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, um, once you once you use the word remain in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, once you use the word remain, you have by definition... Uh, stated that something has been removed because you can't have something remain if something wasn't removed, okay? So, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love is one thing because then the question is, what is it that's been removed if these three remain? What is, what is it that Paul said, we can, we can take this stuff out of the way? And it's rather fascinating, more so for those of us who have been well-schooled in church life and and particularly those of us who have been um, being saturated in a um, evangelical Pentecostal or charismatic um, environment, because he starts out the chapter by saying, "If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, and I'm not love, um, I'm like a sounding gong and a clashing cymbal." 
Um, or in other words, um, some of the things that we have thought define somehow the extended level of our spirituality, Paul describes as, as being a sounding gong and a clashing cymbal. If, if love is not driving it, and we'll talk about that in a minute, um, and uh, sounding gongs and clashing cymbals are not just a noise, they're an irritating noise. So I find the challenge is, Paul says, you guys have become an irritating noise. Okay. Um, looks and sounds like spirituality, but, but has become an irritating noise. And then, then he goes on to talk about uh, knowledge and wisdom. Let me just, let me just read that. He says, uh, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... If I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So, you know, our ability to be mystical, to be knowledgeable, to be uh, powerfully capable, to be academically efficient, uh, theologically sound, is, is challenging all these things. He says, he says, but if this ingredient is missing, I am nothing. And then he throws one more in there, which is that if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, or in other words, if I give all I have to the poor, and I, I am so sacrificially um, um, invested that I have martyred myself, right? So I live in a spirit of martyrdom, um, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I'm fascinated by that, because I would have thought at, at, at a surface glance that you can't give all you possess to the poor, and sacrifice your body to the extent that you would be martyred um, without love. But he's suggesting you can, which is weird, isn't it? It, it also shows how, how twisted human nature can be, that all of these things we can do without love. Um, mostly because so many people get caught up in these things, and it's about what they are proving to themselves, what I am proving to myself. Um, in terms of how I measure my progress in any given thing. So in this context, uh, spirituality, Christianity, Paul, Paul, Paul is making this fascinating statement. This is, this is how, I, this is how I, I noted it to myself, so I could talk. That, so Paul puts everything that we churchy Christians have aspired to and expended huge amounts of energy trying to achieve into three categories, an irritating noise, I'm nothing because of it, and gain nothing through it. Now that, that's probably more challenging to me, having been around the church for so long, and, and, and walked this journey for so long, because um, I know how much energy and effort I apply from myself to achieving and accomplishing those things. And, and uh, really the summary is this, Paul says, it's just stuff. Now that's quite staggering, because... Um, I, some years ago, I would have felt I was blaspheming to make that statement. Because he's talking about tongues of men and of angels. He's, he's talking about spiritual gifts that we might manifest. He's talking about prophesying. He's talking about being, being knowledgeable and capable and theological and, and giving and kind and all kinds of social pro projects and working ourselves half to death. And he make, he's making this statement, guys, that's just stuff. It's good stuff. And it's not stuff without, without meaning, but it is stuff. And uh, in terms of what really matters, that's just stuff. So, my desire is, and I think we've been going down this track, that, that we recognize in the context of, of our own expression of faith and what a church looks like, how much is just stuff. Uh, and that's a little frightening to me because, you know, church has been my life. This is like my job. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what I do as well as who I am. And um, it's like to realize that, that, that Paul's, Paul's cutting through the ball here and saying, a lot of that stuff is just stuff. So, so what he's really driving at very practically, when we sing on a Saturday night or whenever, Paul's, Paul's saying, it's good, but it's stuff. Okay. You know, great prayer meeting, it's good, but it's stuff. And, uh, you know, for people like me, has a good preach, but 
lot of that's just stuff. Um, sometimes necessary stuff, sometimes not necessary stuff, but it's just stuff. So, so our energies, he's calling us to put our energies into something beyond that. It doesn't mean we don't give any energy to that. It doesn't mean we shouldn't acquire knowledge or we shouldn't have wisdom or, or we shouldn't speak in tongues of men and of angels or that we shouldn't help the poor. But he's saying you have to put it in its rightful place and that does not define you and that does not define a good church. Okay? Does not define a good church. Now, I realise most of what I liked about church all of my life was the stuff. So how many times have you gone in and said they have great worship? Right? They might all fight like cat and dogs after you've gone. They might, you know, there might be a lot of pride in, in the situation. The, uh, all kinds of stuff, but, but how many times have we defined something by by something like that. And Paul's trying to say, look, it might be good stuff, but at the end of the day, it's just stuff. So, so he's given us a measurement. He said that when you strip away the stuff, um, only three things remain. Or in other words, the only three things that truly matter are these three things. Faith, hope, and love. And that the greatest of these is love. Now, we had a little shot at defining these uh, when we talked about it here. And I was trying to help them define it um, back there. And um, we talked about faith being, being the determined placement of faith, uh, a de determined placement of belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And um, I said this to you before, but um, you know I'm, I'm going to say it to you again because I preach these messages to me loads of times. Because every time I preach, um, uh, if you've not figured this about me, it's like the first time I've preach that message. Right? There's no message that I take anywhere that I go in thinking, got to preach this. I'm, I'm, I'm as excited as the first time I ever saw it, because mainly because I am, I am preaching those truths back to me. Now, I've heard them every time I've said them, and I've heard them from others. But, but for me, there's life in it, because it's like, oh, I need to hear this. So that's what I often say to people, if you're, you know, if you're done and um, you're ready to finish, that's fine. You leave, I'll, I'll lock up when I'm, when I'm done. Because so, so, so wrestling with this thing about faith, see, see I for so long um, did the natural human thing which connects faith with power, faith with power, faith with power. And I think, I think particularly in a church environment, those two things have been put together, faith and power and faith and power. When, when actually we're not called to have faith in the power of God, we're called to, we're called to, and again I talked about it's a determined placement because um, where you place your belief is entirely up to you. Um, if, you don't, if you don't determine to place it somewhere, there, there are a couple of things that will happen. One, it will naturally gravitate somewhere. And uh, usually it will gravitate more to a, um, a root of fear than a root of confidence, okay? So we have a lot of, a lot of fear in our world because, because we didn't make a determined placement of our belief, okay? So you have a choice tonight to determine where you place that belief. Now, now that's only the beginning of the process, okay? But, but what it is, it's, it's taking hold of something that then... What you determine to place your belief in is what will ultimately influence your life. Um, so, uh, some, some of us, maybe some of you, are determined to be afraid. Right? There is a determination. Nobody is going to convince me that I should not be afraid in this situation, even of life. Okay? Now, we... What I find fascinating about us is we, we wouldn't use those words, would we? Wouldn't, we wouldn't say to somebody that. Um, but see, the most important part of our life is actually the subconscious. It's the real you. It's, it's, what, it's what you're really saying from in here um, rather than the facade that we put on for people. You know. Um, and the truth is, sad, sad thing is, and I've encountered this um, all of my ministry life, some people don't want to change. Okay? We'll say, oh, I, want to, I wish things were different, but actually don't, you don't want to change. 
because uh, the change is, is more frightening than the status quo. And you're frightened of the status quo, but you see the change as being more frightening, when actually it isn't. Um, so so our, a determined placement of belief and trust is, is, is our part of the process. Now, um, I, I personally believe that, that faith is a gift of God. Um, I think faith is something that goes beyond just believing in something. And I, I believe what the Bible says, that every man has a measure of, of faith that God has given him. That There's a seed inside of us. Because Jesus again talked about faith like a seed. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, um, so, so there's an attachment, even in Jesus' talk, that, that connects faith with seed. Okay, So we've talked a little bit about seed these last few weeks on a Saturday night. That, that seed is full of potential, but... but Potential doesn't produce anything. Only seed that's sown produces anything. So, so I believe that we first make a choice to a determined placement of our belief and trust is what triggers and initiates the faith that is inside us. So I make a decision, okay? And um, uh, sometimes in what we've taught, and because of the way we've taught it, we we've, can move away of thinking we don't have to make any decisions because God's done it all so much and it's all so finished in Christ that I don't have to make any decisions. Well, um, I haven't meant to lead you that way to think that we don't have to make any, any decisions. I have deliberately tried to pull us away from the fact that God acts because we decide, okay, um, I think we decide on something that God has already done. So, so in, in what we desire, um, I believe that this first step of this, this process of faith, is the determined, placement, the determined placement of your belief and trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God, not the power of God. Um, because then what we're trying to do, in a strange way, we try to convince ourselves that God is powerful enough to deal with this. There's something peaceful about about uh, trust and faithfulness, you know, that we, we uh, uh, goodness and faithfulness, that requires no, it requires no anxiety on our part because, you know, when you get into power, power's about, you know, we kind of trying to make this power happen. Hence the reason why, um, you know, I've, I've been through some funny things and I can only talk a little bit from, from church experience, but... Uh, I've been through all the phases of where the louder you prayed, like the more powerful things should become, you know. And I've done that. I've got louder and louder because it's like it's like we're trying to somehow get this power of God to um, to show up. Whereas, whereas when you have a determined placement of 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 belief in in the goodness and faithfulness of God, there's something even when I say that is like peaceful, you know. It's like it's like it's not making a demand on my effort to change things okay it's just saying okay so God is good and God is faithful well look there can only be one possible outcome then see you've already you've already set the agenda and I believe that's why that's where faith rises in that environment because actually if, if God is good and God is faithful the outcome's going to be okay isn't it it's going to be good and it's going to be faithful so, so I believe that that's um, our determined placement in that is what is what faith then um, begins to look like, and that you know I said without faith it's impossible to please God. Now, um, if we misunderstand that scripture, what it says is that we have to strive to have faith um, because God's not going to do anything on our behalf unless we've striven ourselves. Is that a word? Striven. It's a nice word, isn't it? It's striven a word, Jen. Can we striven ourselves? Striven into something. So we can't strived into something, can we? And you can't have strived. Yeah, I strove into it. Um, so, so I don't believe that's the word because I think, you know, um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have much striving for that, did we? Um, you know, before they call, I will answer. So, so my my view on on um, on that statement in Hebrews eleven verse six is that is that um, it doesn't mean that that we have to have faith for God to be something. I think it means that God is just pleased when when He sees faith. 
And faith is the determined placement of trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. So it's not about his power. It's about our willingness to accept his goodness and his faithfulness. Um, and uh, it pleases God. Now, of course, I linked with that, and, and I was talking about it with the guys this week, this, um, this business of love languages, uh, which I think is, a, is an important thing to consider because um, I asked the question, you know, what is God's love language? Um, and I think that's critical, personally. I don't know what you think. And, of course, I got the response I was looking for and was able to say, no, you're wrong, um, in Bellingham, because cause I talked to them about what the, um, um, the psychology people call the five love languages of people, which basically are in these arenas. Words of affirmation, uh, quality time, receiving of gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. So... You know, there are five arenas that you could spread out and, you know, some of those inter- intertwine and what have you. But the basic premise is this, that a love language is each individual's primary way of expressing and interpreting love. And everyone has a love language. So um, I think this is also critical to re-emphasize because um, this love language thing is fascinating, especially when you get into a wider group like this. I mean, it's hard enough when there's just, you know, this l- number of group, too. Um, you know, and almost 40 years into marriage, I realized that it, it, it takes a bit of learning, and I'm not quite sure I've sussed it out yet. So, um, but basically, a love language is, um, you know, if, if I am trying to express love to you, but I'm doing it in a way that I understand the expression of love, but you don't understand that as the language of love, then it doesn't matter how hard I try, it doesn't matter how sincere I am in doing what I'm doing, it will not interpret to you as love, okay? So that's something inside of you that, that, that gets pleased, doesn't get pleased, but I'm doing my best. And so, and so you can get arguments with couples, you know, and of course what will come out is I'm doing my best here. Well, that's true, that is true. Um, but the best, if it's not the love language, it doesn't matter how best it is, how much effort you've put in, it will never interpret to that person as, as love. Um, and, you know, we all, I have a love language. I, I know how you can upset me very quickly, uh, even indeliberately, um, because there is a certain language of love I have, which I'm not going to tell you what it is. You figure it out. I have to figure yours out. Um, but I know from that how powerful these, these things actually, actually are and how invigorating when somebody speaks your love language it becomes, which is why, okay? So if faith, if faith is God's love language, oh, the reason I said I, I, I got to tell somebody they were wrong was very kind because I have a really good rapport with the guys in Bellingham and they're much more vocal than you are, okay? Um, so I'd said about these five love languages and I said, so if we have a love language, what is God's love language? Well, of course, somebody sparked up, which, which was good for me, all five. To which my answer was, you're wrong. <laughs> it's not. See, we, we think, oh, those are our love languages, those are God's love language. Or, or in other words, everything's God's love language. When actually, the Bible's extremely clear about God's love language, because he says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now that doesn't mean God won't love you, but it means this thing called being pleased, right, which is what happens when somebody speaks your love language, you, something inside you gets really pleased. And then what happens is you give. It, it, it's, it, it's a reward, but not as in you had to pay this debt, you paid that debt, here's the reward, but it, it's, a, it's a spontaneous reward, okay? It's not for good works. It's just for the fact that your heart's gone, oh, that's amazing, I felt that. So that same verse in Hebrews 11 says, it, it says that, um, it says, for without faith it's impossible to please God. Um, um, uh, for those who come to him must believe that he exists and the rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, that's fascinating because there's an important word in there, exist, which, which um, I'm not very good at. Okay, by my own personality type. And a lot of us aren't. Isn't it interesting that God should talk about you noticing that he exists? And I say, well, of course we notice God exists. No, no, you don't. 
There's a difference between me saying, Chris Chapman is my wife, and noticing that she actually exists. Okay? One, one, is, one is technically correct, and it's legally correct, but that does not make her necessarily feel that she exists in my eyes. you understand what I'm saying? So, so when Hebrews says that whoever comes to God must believe that he exists, it means that you must see him, recognize him for actually who he is. Not God, but you have to recognize him as Abba, as Father. You have to let him exist as, as who he is. Now, 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 religion and the process of religion and law takes us away from that because we stop recognizing him for who he is. So, so we see God as judge, we see God as creator, we see God as all these things, but in terms of him actually existing like a person in your life where you notice, see, that's different. Like I never noticed that Chris had had a haircut short. I noticed the color was the same, but I didn't notice, right? Uh, pretty sad, isn't it? Um, but there you go. That's um, that. That's so. 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 It's this fascinating thing that relations, relationally, God actually wants to know that in your eyes He exists, uh, exists as who He is, exists as the good and faithful Father. Uh, and it says then, if you know He exists, it is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, of course, that means the ones who diligently seek that one who really exists. Now, of course, uh, we've put a lot of effort in, and I've put a lot of effort in, uh, along with others, in trying to help us to, to, to change how we view God. Okay? Uh, and the fact that, that, that we've gone through a major shift because... because because um, the idea is not to become God-conscious, the idea is to become Father-conscious, which is a very different thing. And uh, I don't believe that, that God wanted us to become God-conscious, he wanted us to become Father-conscious, and so we've said lots of stuff about that, how Jesus never referred to, to the divine creator as God, except on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that every other time... Um, he is, he is, this, this person exists in Jesus' eyes. And you know he exists because he keeps calling him Father. Talking about Father, it's this, this special relationship. So, so, so there's a reward in understanding that. So, so faith then is the love language that, that touches the heart of God. And, and, and faith springs out of me being determined to, to place my belief and trust in his goodness and in his faithfulness, which, which again, it might just be me, but, but um, in a lot of my life, the focus that I leaned towards was the power of God, the power of God, the power of God. And uh, I would dare to say I could take time to show how consciously and subconsciously a lot of the, the focus in church life has been about the power of God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is, you know, he moves the mountain, our gods will strike his enemies. They're all, are all statements of, of power. And, and I, think, I, think, I think we have to move away from that when we truly understand that faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. So, because so, uh, then we talked about the... Um, uh, what I call the poor relation of the three, which is hope, talked about how, uh, and again, this is important to say again, I have to keep saying it to myself, how hope has become uh, a negative confession in our lives. Um, you know, this business of, you know, I hope I'm going to be okay when I see the doctor. I hope my kids are not going to get into drugs, you know. Um, uh, I hope I hope that, that I'm not going to lose my job so I don't, and, and struggle to pay my mortgage. So, so just about every way that, that we ever use hope is a is a negative a negative context, which, which actually it it it, it disempowers hope of what hope is meant to be. Because hope was not this thing that I call a confession that we're one step from failure. Because if you think about it, I hope I'm going to be okay. It's a confession you're one step from failure. You're actually thinking. One more step and I'm going to fail. Okay? So hope becomes the confession that you, you're declaring, I'm one step from failure, that's where I am. Okay? You know, I hope I'm not going to have an accident. Hope I'm not going to lose my job. Hope, hope, hope becomes negative. Um, 
where, of course, hope was never meant to be that, and, and, and I redefined hope, and this is the, the definition I live by, that hope is the confident expectation um, that the last word has not yet been spoken, and there may well be a word beyond that. Now, I, I love that definition. That, that triggers something in my heart. Hope is a confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken. See, see that means that whatever my situation... Um, it ain't over because the last word hasn't been spoken. And, and what I'm declaring is I'm not going to speak the last word. See, when I say I hope I'm not going to die, I, I've just basically been the one who's given the last word before I might die. And, but, but when it's a confident expectation the last word hasn't been spoken, we, we're leaving room to say, do you know what? It looks bleak, it looks dark, it looks difficult, it looks tough. You know, it looks problematic, but you know what? There's a word beyond this. There's another word. Now, if we've got a, a determined placement of our, our, our belief and trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God, you see how this connects together then? That inevitably, the word that is yet to come is a word that will come out of goodness and faithfulness. Okay? So, um, you know, good things are going to be spoken, just like Jesus on the cross. The last thing he said, it is finished. It's a... That, that was the last word to that situation that was beyond the situation. So it also talks about hope being, being the anchor for the soul in the uh, in book of Hebrews. And he says it's like putting your hand into the... The Jews were rich on their symbolism from their history and understood that for them, uh, the presence of God was behind a curtain because they had the... They had the, the, the what was known as the tabernacle of Moses and then the temple and the, the presence of God was behind the curtain. So, so in the book of Hebrews, um, the writer describes it this way. It says, hope which is the anchor for the soul, which means it stops you drifting and being swept on every current, is like putting your hand through the curtain, through the veil, through the curtain, into the holy place where God is. Or in other words, you can't see past that curtain but you know if you can put your hand through the curtain, you'll get a hold of something that's like an anchor. It will, it will stop you drifting. It will stop you being swept by every, every current and every tide. So, so what hope allows you to do is say, okay, here's the deal. Uh, I have a confident expectation the last word has not yet been spoken. and There might well be a word after that. And my hand has actually been pushed through, through to where I cannot see and I've got a hold of something. That something I've got a hold of is the very presence of God himself. So his goodness and faithfulness I've got a hold of. I'm not seeing it yet, okay, because that, that's where hope is. I'm not seeing it here, but I'm holding it there. I've got my arm through and holding it. So, so there's something about hope that allows us to take hold of take hold of a presence that is outside of our physical world to know that in our physical world the last word has not yet been spoken. Of course, then that, that leads us through onto this whole business of, um, you know, of, of, uh, of love. And the greatest of these is, is, is love. So, um, I, I said this to you before, and again, I have to say it again, because I think this is critical for shaping our conclusion of this year and our moving into the next phase. Is that if you look at this and you understand how we've defined them, and again, you know, if we define love, um, the whole chapter before verse 13 is about love, okay? Uh, if I speak tongues of men and angels, don't have love. If I have all this wisdom, don't have love. And then, of course, he goes into his statement about love is gentle, love is kind. You know, um, um, love, love is always giving. Love doesn't keep any record of wrongs. Uh, I'm not going to go through every one of them, but you can see the, they're, they're pretty amazing. You know, in not rude, not self-seeking. I love the keeps no record of wrongs one because I think that's that's... Uh, critical to understand and I think it's critical also for our own um, dealings with one another. If we love one another, we can't keep record of wrongs. But if we're not careful, what, what pours out of us when we're squeezed is all the record of wrongs that we have kept. Uh, about people who have done stuff to us or, or people who've done stuff to others 
or our friends who said that people have done stuff to them and what pours out is this record of wrongs and I love keeps no record of wrongs now it's tough it's tough and it's hard but this is tough kind of love it's the kind of love that, that I want God to have towards me so when you understand this love you have to even redefine some things that I thought because I, I was taught uh, from scripture that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and, and I was taught correctly from the literal text that the books will be opened and every man will be judged according to what is written in the books. Okay, well, so, um, if, we go, if we go Old Testament before this all happened, you have David saying, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities the Lord does not count against him. Uh, you have David saying, um, he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. So if transgressions are removed, there is no record of wrongs. Right? Does that make sense? Because if the transgression is not removed, there's still a record. So David says that he has removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west. And then various other scriptures, but coming, coming back to this one in, in 1 Corinthians um, and tying it with that other thing. So, if the books are opened, so all the symbolism of, of um, you know, of John, the, the symbolism, the books being opened and being judged out of the books, uh, I was terrified because it was like, you know, I understood scriptures of things being, you know, that there was going to be a videotape of your life and everybody would get to watch the videotape of your life. You know, well... First of all, think how long that would take, just for one of us. Um, but if it's just a record in books, but love keeps no record of wrongs, and, and, and John, Jesus' closest disciple, summarizes his whole concept of the Father and the experience that he's had with Jesus walking as his closest disciple, uh, and now being being part of the apostolic leadership of the emerging church. And John, as an old man, says, basically, it's all stuff except this. God is love. Right? Saying the same thing as, as, as Paul. God is love. Uh, and here is love, not that we loved God, which is what all the emphasis of religion was on, that we have to love God and we have to love him right and we have to love him strong and we have to love him good. Uh, and that will be will be responded to according to how much we love God. But this this old guy John now says, "No, you see, God is is love. That's the essence of all that He is. He, he can't help Himself but love." And He says, "Here in His love, or this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us." So John says, "Here's the deal, guys. That it's 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 not effort. It's not about your effort to love God. It's about God's." God's irresistible need to love you. Now, my personal view is that, that, that then uh, what is effortless in terms of receiving love becomes effortful in terms of that received love. So, so because of the love I receive, which is effortless, requires no effort from me, then my response should be somewhat effortful because Jesus said, here's the new command, that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Or in other words, we apply our effort into loving others out of the same love that has been given to us, which is effortless. Now I put my effort into wanting that love to be given out and shown out. So John says this is love. Now, he also says there's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. So, so if God is love and there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear then whatever this experience is can't be scary. Can't think about it. Just think, think logically. If there is no fear in love, and John's point is God is love, and perfect love, which is God, drives out fear, then whatever this experience is, it can't be scary. It can't be frightening, because there's no fear in love. Now, so here's my, here's my other point. Um, so if these books are opened, it, it, to me it goes a little bit like this. So the books are open and I'm judged out of the books. So it's a bit like this. Hang on, let me just, let's try another page. Yep. Oh, hang on, let's flip a bit further on. Let's try here. Nope. 
Why? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. So, so, so we're called to embrace this so great a salvation that helps us to understand that in this love, love keeps no record of wrongs. So however it all pans out, some of it can't pan out like some of us were told it pans out because otherwise God's a schizophrenic. And uh, I don't believe that he is. So, so when he goes through all this stuff, we've got, and then John defining that, you know, this is love, not that we love God, but, but that he loves us because God himself is, is love. Um, I like the fact that it always protects in verse 7, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, so God's always got a trust towards me, a confident expectation about my life that the last word's not yet been spoken. He always trusts, see? So, so this all talks about how God is to us, but also talks about how the love that we express should look like. This gives us some material on which it has to, 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 to base itself. Our love has got to look like this, because God's love looks like that. Now, I don't believe that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, uh, because he was thinking when he wrote that, he's thinking, do you know what? Um, I need to write something here so that when they do weddings, they've got something to preach on. And yet the sad thing is that the, the, most, the most common use for this chapter is weddings. When actually it's got nothing whatsoever to do with weddings. He's actually saying, okay guys, this is really serious. Okay, you need to understand something here. You have got caught up in stuff and the stuff is not what it's about and I want you coming back to realize that the love that it's about looks like this, okay? So, um, so, he says, uh, faith, hope, and love, this kind of love, and the, the, the greatest of these is love. Now, now um, I've said before, and I need to say again, that, that um, I believe that the actual order is, is reversed when he says this. So if the greatest is love, then it doesn't go faith, hope, love. It actually goes love, hope, faith. Because the greatest is love. So he's given us the things, but then his, his killer one is, but the greatest of these is love. Or in other words, you start with love. Now, um, here's how that works. Y you start by embracing and understanding the extent to which you have been loved by the Father and you are loved by the Father. And uh, we've been taught some wrong things and I've, I've used wrong phrases and I've said this many times uh, and I don't believe it anymore that how many of you have heard God loves you in spite of? No, he doesn't. That's not love. God loves you because of, right? God loves you because of, and he doesn't change in spite of. But it's not that he loves you in spite of. That's like, well, I guess if I have to love you, you, you know, you just drive me nuts, and everything about you is just abhorrent, but, but I'll choose to love you. That's what love in spite of is. But love because of is, Amy, I really like you. You're just, you're just, uh, you're just uh, it's great. Yeah but, there's all, yeah, but in spite of all that, right? So he loves you because of who you are. And that's, that's something you have to grasp. God loves you because of who you are. He actually does like you. And then that never changes in spite of who you are. Okay? He doesn't love you in spite of who you are. That would be tolerance. He loves you because of who you are. That's called love. And he'll never change that in spite of who you are. Do you get that? If you can grasp that and understand that, you realize all the in spite ofs don't change what was the initial position. The initial position is God loves me because. He loves me because he loves me. He likes me. I'm, I'm, I'm the apple of his eye. I'm, I'm loved by him. So, so when you put it that way, when, when you grasp that kind of love um, is when you can't help then to, but to have hope. If you know you loved that much, you will then develop a confident expectation that the last word has not yet been spoken because everything that's happening is happening from a basis of love, not reward. Okay? And then when you develop a confident expectation that the last word's not yet been spoken, um, what happens from that is you then begin to realize that faith is growing in your, in your heart. Now, there's one other attached scripture to that, which is Hebrews 11 verse 1, that says that faith makes substance of the things we hope for. Or in other words, hope is the raw material um, with which faith works. So, so he, here's where we get into difficulty. If When I lose hope, it's impossible for me to have faith. 
So sometimes we're struggling. Well, I, I, I wish I had faith, but we can't have faith unless, unless there's hope because faith makes substance of what we hope for. So, so I have to come to that confident expectation. The problem is changing hope from a negative confession that we're one step from failure to a confident expectation that the last word's not yet been spoken only happens in an environment where you know you're loved. Okay? And when you know you're loved, that hope springs up, and when that hope springs up, faith takes a hold of it. And when faith takes a hold of it, we start to live a little more like, like these love is kind and love is not rude, and it keeps no record of wrongs because now we have no agenda that we're having to keep up to support our own position because we've realized that love changed us and love changed our situation, and it will go on to change all the scenarios that we, we deal with. So... I finished that when I talked to you, and I'm going to finish this again with that, is I talked to you about, about the questions of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I know we, you know, nakedness and danger and sword are not particularly something that we face on a daily basis. Um, but knowing all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I'm convinced neither death nor life nor angels nor demons or present nor the future nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So, so here's, here's what I need to re-emphasize with this. Um, it's a question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, the reason I'm emphasizing this is I realize that Statements like this for much of my life, I read them as a statement, not a question. So it was a statement, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Um, so I went merrily along my way, never giving two thoughts really, to what, what's he driving at? What, what, what is he trying to get at here uh, in the context of my life? Is he driving at the fact that, that I could off-pat pour things out, you know, oh, God is great and, and the devil's defeated and... Um, you know, which doesn't always show up in our lives that we actually really believe that, just becomes like First Corinthians 13, the words that we speak, the, the things that we express. So it comes as a question to us, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Which, I don't know what your answer is to that. That's, that's for you to answer. He's given a few examples with hardship, persecution, famine, Facebook, being disliked, You know, taking an offence, taking someone else's offence, um, feeling you've been hard done by, mistreated, misunderstood. Because for all of don't tell me that those things don't separate you from the love of Christ, because if they did, they wouldn't, they wouldn't matter, would they? Well, I've been misunderstood. And suddenly we, we, we're upset and somehow we've lost our sense of being loved because it's, it's a question, understand what I'm saying? It's a question that we have to say now are the things that really, in essence, if I get past the religious stuff of 1 Corinthians 13, 1, 2 and 3, you know, which is what he's saying, if I get past the stuff, are there really things that impact on me that, that, that are really separating my, my appreciation and acceptance of the love of Christ? And then, of course, he goes on to the classic in, or we go back to the classic in verse 31. Let, what then shall we say in response to this? Question mark. Okay. It's one of my favorite uh, verses now, this. Um, I could talk about this every day of the week because I think it's so important. What then shall we say in response to this? Question mark. It's, that's, that's the response then. And, then. and then, if God is for us, who can be against us? Question mark. So it's the question mark that's critical. Because he's saying, what shall we say in response to this? Shall we say, if God be for us, who can be against us? And, and that's the quote I've shouted in my... Is that what we shall say? If God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, the point is, when you understand his driving, it's like, if? That's the problem. 
if God is for us, who can be against us? That, that's not the response he's looking for. He's saying, shall we say this, if God is for us? The response he's looking for is you to say, forget the if, God is for us. God is for us. See, so the whole point of this, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, which, which, which triggers that faith with its confident expectation, the last word's not yet been spoken, which feeds the faith that then speaks the love language of, of God, brings us to a place where there is no if. We just got took out of the place of wondering, God is for us. That, that's, that's, that's his point here. Shall, what shall we say? Shall we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? No, we're not going to say that. We're going to say, God is for us. It's removed the if. And if you look at the terminology, this is, this is the fascinating cross-link um, of... Uh, of the Greek in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, you could just as easily say, if I speak with tongues of men and of angels, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, if I give my body to be burned, if I give all I have to the poor, see? But when we understand this, it removes the if, okay? So all those ifs were connected to the stuff that we were trying to attach to that we thought would somehow give us acceptance and, and give us, um, put us in a place of, of, of God's favour, where well, you are in a place of God's favour. But here's my encouragement. This is my encouragement for us this year. Um, let's try and speak God's love language, okay, in every situation. Let's try and speak God's love language. So let me define that again. Here's God's love language. A determined... Determined placement of our belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So what becomes our message to others when they're all upset and passing stuff on? It's to help them put a determined placement of, of belief and trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Okay. So, so we want to speak God's, God's love language because we've received an understanding of love that is not us earning it, which I think we've done pretty well and we've gone pretty well, but it leads us into that definition of hope, which leads us into the faith, and then it says that that faith pleases the heart of God. And uh, when we understand that, we, we live our lives saying God is for us. I, I, I have started to come to a place which, which is, I greatly appreciate, I believe it is impacting my life, of, of, of knowing that the if is removed, that God is for us. So has that answered all the, all the issues? No. But what is answering all the issues is I'm learning to put my hand through the curtain into the very presence of God and say, well, because you're good and faithful, that's, that's my anchor point, okay? That's my anchor point. And my hope is telling me the last word's not yet been spoken, right? The last word's not yet been spoken. God is with me. So I hope that just, you know, I know some of this is, is repeat, for which I make no apology at all, because good education is a lot of repetition with a few things added on to the top of it. I do, I do guys, think this understanding is critical to where we go from here. I think if we can catch this. Uh, and then understand also what I said at the beginning, that, 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 um, that our freedom in this, you know, it is for freedom Christ has set us free, is actually making us free to make decisions that actually we, we need to, in response to that love, understand that it's not, it's not freedom to become self-indulgent. It's not, it's not freedom to be self-obsessed or to become um, what we often talk about American society has become a sense of entitlement. But it becomes one then of willing to give ourselves because of this into what it is that has given us this and begin to reach people's lives so that in their lives we can teach them that God is for them. And when God is for us, he says, who can be against us? What can be against us? Because that's never going to give the last word. So we're blessed people. Hope that's helped you a little bit. And um, so it's good, isn't it? It's good. Uh, let's just stand up for a minute. Let's just 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 thank the Father that that we're loved with with such an incredible love, and that we are loved because of who we are. Loved because of. Loved because of. 
love because of. Some wonderful verses of scripture. One of them says that you did not choose me, but I chose you. <laughs> Why? Because of. See, that's not in spite of, that's because of. I chose you, I chose you. Uh, every one of you has been chosen by God. And the truth is, and walk the streets of this city tonight and tell people, do you know that you've been chosen by God? Why? Because he loves you because of. Yeah, but what about all this stuff? Well, in spite of all that, he still loves you because of who you are. And so, Father, help us. We, we, um, we, we don't want to be caught up in a bubble of examining what is and is not spiritual truth or doctrine. We, we, want, we want to... Uh, explosively express out in every dimension and every area this this that you have brought us into um, help us not to be lazy because sometimes we were driven by first of all the threat of our own standing before you and how it would look if we didn't do certain things and also if we don't have as big a threat about everybody's damned and going to hell and a few are going to be saved, Lord, sometimes that can be a demotivator. But help us to have a tremendous motivation in the love and the hope and the faith that you're raising within us to touch a generation and uh, to bring a people to experience, to, to a moment of salvation, a moment of salvation experience, a moment of where a transformation is the consequence of... Um, of a changed mind, a renewed mind, seeing things differently, understanding things differently. Uh, and so we thank you for every blessing. We thank you tonight that you are good and you are faithful. Above all, you are good and you are faithful. We, we don't need to talk much about your power because you don't need encouraging in your power. You know how powerful you are. Um, but we, we need to be based in your goodness and faithfulness. So thank you for that, Father. Thank you that that's over us and in us and working through us and it's in the house and let it show up in every area and every dimension. And help all of us to be um, 1 Corinthians 13 type people, not caught up in the stuff, but with a love that honestly is not rude and is not self-seeking and doesn't keep record of wrongs and is long-suffering and always trusts and always perseveres. That, that's where we want to be uh, in the context of life and with each other. Uh, and so, Father, we just, we just offer ourselves up to you. We offer all that we've tried to do and all that we will try to do uh, this year. We're doing our best, but um, we don't believe that it's our best that brings change. We, we want to live in the best of who you are, in your goodness, love, kindness, and, and faithfulness. Well, thank you for bringing us this far. It's grace that brought us this far. We couldn't have survived without mercy but now you've changed us and you hold us up as your trophy to the world to show what you were able to do in people like us. So we bless you for that and ask you to help us to continue and keep on not to turn back, keep our hand to the plough and um, for your kingdom to come in new ways and your will to be done here on earth like it is in heaven. And for everybody who we are supposed to reach and touch because of the circle of our world, help us to be faithful in that, to touch them and reach them and, uh, and speak the good things that you have done and given to them and for them and on their behalf um, so that we'll grow to whatever we're supposed to grow to according to whoever we're supposed to reach. That's all we're asking, Father, and we'll be happy if we can say like Jesus, we did what you asked us to do. And so thanks, Lord, for a, a great group of people. Thank you for bringing us together. Help us to realize that this was not by accident. It's by divine appointment that we are a body and to serve one another and do what we're supposed to do for the glory of your name in this city. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're done. That's it. We're done. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.